Church. Uh, very excited this morning. We are starting a brand new series, uh, and if you have already seen in your program, it's a series called Sinning Like a Christian. Might be a bit of an off-putting title to you, uh, but let me explain uh, just a little bit. We want to be a church, we want to be a community of people who are constantly being shaped and formed into the image of God. And so what that means is that we have to constantly be examining our own selves, our own lives. We have to constantly be willing to look in the mirror and ask the question, how are we doing? Uh, are we being the kind of people who God is using and transforming in this world. And so we're going to take a look over the next couple of weeks about our sin. We're going to focus on that and think about the ways that our sin impacts our lives and whether or not it's keeping us from being able to follow Christ fully. Uh, so remember a couple of months ago, we talked about uh, our mission and vision, uh, that we want to be people who are fully devoted to following Christ. Well, this is going to fit right in with that because we're going to try and examine, we're going to try and think about the ways that this affects us. We're going to think about the ways that sin is in our lives and what we can actually do as a, a, as a way to invite God to root that out of our lives and to begin to form us into the people that we need to be. Uh, I want us to think about, for just a few minutes, the life of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was doing his ministry, the thing that came up constantly, over and over again, uh, were the religious leaders criticizing, critiquing Jesus for the people that he spent his time with. If you read through the Gospels, you can't help but see over and over again that Jesus is going to constantly be criticized because he's hanging out with uh, tax collectors, with prostitutes, with people that they think he has no business spending time with. And so when Jesus hears these responses, and he hears them often, I love the response that we hear when Jesus has called Matthew a tax collector. He tells the religious leaders that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's, uh, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Uh, as we begin this series, I want us to think about the life of Jesus because this is where we're going to end up. We're going to end up thinking about the way that Jesus rescues us and changes our lives and transforms our sin uh, to where it no longer holds us captive. It no longer is the thing that defines our lives, but instead, it's his grace, his love, and his mercy. So when Jesus is confronted, when people come in and complain to him about who he spends his time with, he's got an answer ready. Uh, he quotes this passage of scripture that says that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And this is really important because the people that he's talking to are likely the people who are offering sacrifices for other people. Uh, in our Bible class today, we talked about Jesus as the great high priest, as the high priest who is above all other high priests. Uh, Jesus is critiquing the priests in this moment. Uh, the people who, who mediate God's presence to the people, he's telling the people he desires not what they do, not the sacrifices that they offer, but mercy, love. So when Jesus is confronted, his response is to say, I'm not here for the, the righteous people. I'm here for the sick. And what's so brilliant about this move is that the people that he's talking to, the people who think that they're righteous, really are the sick ones. See, Jesus isn't saying that he's not here for the religious leaders. He's not saying that he's uh, not going to, his ministry is not going to affect them or change them. What he's actually doing is, in a very subtle way, is trying to help them begin to understand that they're exactly the type of people that he's there for. Because he requires mercy, not sacrifice. And for so long, the religious leaders have been so intent on the sacrifice that they've missed out on God. So the church today gets a bad reputation a lot of times. Uh, chances are, if you turn on the news, there's some story someday 
about some church or some group of Christians who have done something that have upset other people. Uh, this happens all the time. Uh, and a lot of times the, the criticism that Christians get is well-deserved. It's something that uh, we sometimes we bring it on ourselves, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but that's not to say that we aren't a people that God has called. That's not to say that we aren't a people that God is trying to work through and transform. Uh, and so what we need to hear today as the, as the church is that regardless of the mistakes that we've made, regardless of the sin in our lives, that Jesus is here for each and every single one of us. I think a lot of times we gather together on Sundays and, you know, when we are in a room like this and when we're singing praise and things like that, the tendency is to think that we are people who have made it. Uh, We're people who have gotten there. We're people that God has totally transformed and totally changed. Uh, And a lot of times we don't even focus on sin. We don't even think about the sin in our lives. Uh, A lot of times we put ourselves in the shoes of the righteous people. Uh, This is uh, something that we need to push back against. Because what Jesus is trying to help these religious leaders know in the Gospel of Matthew is that he's here for people just like you and me. People who are here every Sunday, sitting in the church pew, listening to sermons, worshiping together. And Jesus wants us to know that what he desires more than anything is not just the actions, not just the sacrifice of of time and, and, and willingness to be here, but he desires our hearts, the mercy that we have to offer one another and to the world. So yes, we're in the church. We're trying to follow Jesus, but we are sick. We're sinners. We need a doctor. Uh, The passage that we're going to spend the majority of our time in today is a passage that if you've grown up in or around church, that chances are you uh, know this passage very, very well. Uh, So uh, back in the book of Genesis, back in the very beginning, God creates the garden and he creates Adam and Eve. Uh, And and he puts these people in the garden and he he gives them a couple of instructions to tend the garden, uh, to work together, and, and to name the animals. But eventually, in Genesis 3, everything begins to come crumbling down. Uh, and if you've heard this story, this is, uh, this is something that we're so used to, that we're so used to hearing, that sometimes we can, we can forget some of the aspects of the story. And so we're going to take a look here again at the beginning of the story, because we all know how the story ends. We know uh, what happens as a result. Adam and Eve, they sin, they hide from God, they've eaten the fruit, and God has to give them consequences for their sin, and then he kicks them out of the garden and says that they have to go somewhere else. But at the beginning of the story we're told this very interesting aspect about the serpent, that he's the craftiest of all the animals in the garden. And he's going to come to them, and he's going to begin to present something to them. Not just that they need to sin, but what he's going to do is he's going to cast doubt on God's character, on God's trustworthiness, and then he's going to do something that I think is so important for us as we begin to think about what it means to sin like a Christian. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to turn with me. We're going to read a couple of verses here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When you read this story, you can't help but notice what the serpent's doing. Did you see it? Because he's cast out on God's character, yes. But notice what he tells them about what they they will do. About what God defines as sin. You're not going to die. It's not really going to be like that. It's going to be different. 
And this is what we need to know as we head into this series, because what most often happens with sin in our lives, particularly the sins that we're going to spend time talking about over the next couple of weeks, is that most often what we do with sin is redefine it. Is say maybe it's not as bad as it really seems. And when we do that, we give it even greater power in our lives. Because we're not even realizing, we're not even understanding what it really means for us to do these kinds of things. What it means for us to engage in these kinds of actions. So, when I was in high school, uh, my school did this award ceremony very regularly. Uh, and at the end of every year, they would gather all the students together and they would recognize the academic achievements of the, of the people from different classes, from different grades and everything like that. Uh, this is a, a perfectly great ceremony. It was a good time to recognize people and their abilities. Uh, but my friends and I decided, you know, we probably won't win too many of these awards, so let's try and have some fun uh, with this very last one. Uh, when you have a group of seniors who decide to try and have some fun with something in their last year of high school, it's never a good start to a story. So we, we gather together and we think, okay, how can we make this more enjoyable for us, this two-hour-long thing that we're going to have to sit through that maybe we might win something, but chances are probably not. Well, we decided, okay, here's the best way to do it. We're going to try to advance our economic standing in comparison to one another uh, through this ceremony. Uh, that's the nicest way that I can say it. Uh, the, the, the more crass way to say it would be that we were gambling on who would win the award for every class. So, uh, but back to the original definition. We're trying to advance our economic standing. We're trying to do a better job of, of, with our finances here as a group. And so we, we gather together and we decide, okay, uh, how many classes are we all in and everything like that? And the list just starts growing. There's like eight of us, and each of us are taking seven classes, and some of those overlap. So we end up, like, again, advancing our economic status over like 30 classes or something like that. Uh, now we're high school seniors, and all of us are working like part-time jobs with like minimum wage. So none of us are, are very ac or economically advanced at this point in our lives. So we're betting like a dollar. I'm sorry, not betting. Uh, we're placing an investment in... Uh, our futures that are like a dollar or two dollars per class. I want to be very careful with the language that I'm using here. So we're trying to do this, and uh, throughout the whole ceremony, we're like passing money back and forth to each other. Uh, and just to make matters worse, the ceremony is being held at the church that I grew up in. Uh, so like, we're in a church, like passing money back and forth down aisles to each other. It's like a modern day version of the temple, uh, when Jesus like busts in and like turns over the tables. Uh, but we're doing this, and, and at the end of the ceremony, I had no idea what that action would be perceived as, uh, how what we were doing would really matter to other people. So a couple of days later, I told my mom that I had economically advanced myself a few dollars, and she, the look on her face, I remember it, the look on her face was just pure disbelief that we would do something like this, and no less that we would do it in a church. Uh, just totally like disrespecting the, 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 the place we were at and what we were trying to do and recognize other people's great awards and achievements. Uh, and so I looked at her and I just knew that I had messed up. I knew that, that what I had done, I hadn't even realized at the time, mattered more than I thought. So I, I told my mom, I said, Mom, it's not even the worst part. The worst part is that I didn't even win the most money. As if that was going to, like, make it better for her, uh, that her son was, like, somehow not as bad because I didn't win the most money. Uh, I'm sorry, advance myself the most, uh, economically speaking. But this is what sin does in our lives. Uh, this, is, this is a goofy example, and, and I'm trying to have fun with it, um, but it, it's what sin does. 
we, when we engage in it, we don't fully understand what it means. We don't fully understand the implications that it has for our lives. We don't fully understand how other people are going to then see us as a result. Sin has a crafty, crafty way of trying to hide itself and not be recognized for what it really is. So uh, this sermon is not meant to be a downer uh, at all. It's meant to, to be a, a, a sermon that pushes us towards the grace that all of us need in God. But w- as we look at these sins over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to see the different sins that people throughout church history have identified as particularly deadly, as particularly uh, terrible in our lives. And what we're going to notice about these, about the seven deadly sins, the sins of pride and envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, what we're going to see about these sins is that they're not really the worst of the worst, right? I mean, when I, when I say the word gluttony, uh, chances are you get a picture in your mind of somebody who eats a lot of food, and uh, when I say sloth, of somebody who might be a little lazy, uh, when I say, you know, pride or greed, those might get a little bit worse, but at least they're not like committing genocide, right? At least it's not like uh, sex trafficking. Uh, it's not like the worst of the worst. Uh, but these sins have a sneaky way of working themselves into our lives. And when we engage in them, we don't fully understand what they mean. They have a sneaky, a crafty way of making us think that they're not as bad as they really are. I really like the way that Will Willimon talks about this. He's a Christian pastor and author. And when he sees the list of these seven deadly sins that people throughout the centuries have identified as particularly deadly for Christians, this is the way that he describes them. He says, The thing that first impresses us about the seven is how utterly ordinary and unspectacular they are. These are the mundane, all-too-human foibles of the human race in general, not of the few utterly depraved. Perhaps there is something in us that wants to believe that sin must apply to someone or something else other than ourselves. Isn't that true? Don't we hear this list of seven deadly sins and think, well, yeah, I might be a little prideful, uh, but at least I'm not like other people. At least I don't commit acts of genocide. At least I'm not a political tyrant. At least I'm not a slave owner. At least I'm, we can go on and on and on with the list. At least I'm not like that. I might have this in my life, but it's not really that bad. It's not as bad as what other people have done throughout history. You see, the church has this identity. We, we bring it on ourselves sometimes. Sometimes what we do uh, gets a lot of a bad press, and rightfully so. But if you ask another person outside of the church today, what are the things that most, they most see in the church chances are they might tell you that the church is full of judgmental people, that it's full of hypocrisy. And this is exactly the kind of attitude that leads to those perceptions. When we push sin away and push it out of ourselves and say that it's somebody else or that there's somebody worse out there, people see that we begin to become judgmental, that we begin to engage in hypocrisy, because the sin within us surely can't be as bad as the sin within other people, can it? These seven sins, pride, envy, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, sloth, chances are when I say those things, one of those resonates with you. 
maybe more. And the temptation that we will always face when we hear these sins is to think they're not that bad. Because what sin does, and what the serpent did in Genesis chapter 3, was to try to convince us that what we do doesn't matter as much as we think it does. So whether you're a high school senior who's in a church uh, trying to advance your economic status, whether you're a small business owner, whether you're retired, whether you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa, no matter where we are in life, the thing that matters most is the cross of Jesus for each of us. Because sin, if we let it, will sneak in. And it will begin to do the kinds of things in our lives that transform us not into people who follow Christ fully, but into people who are angry, prideful, greedy people. See, these seven sins, they don't seem that bad on the surface. But what each of them leads to is especially harmful for us. Anger can turn into violence. Envy can turn into hatred and fear. Lust can turn into an affair. Greed can turn into exploitation. And the list just keeps going. These sins have been identified as particularly deadly in our lives, not because they themselves are the worst of the worst, but because what they lead us to is to be people who don't look like Christ anymore, but people who look quite a bit different. When Adam and Eve were confronted by God in the garden, uh, did you ever notice the first thing that God does? After they've sinned, God's asking them questions. He's, He's pronouncing consequences for their sin. But the first thing that God actually physically does comes in in, in chapter 3, verse 21. And I want us to look at that. It says that the Lord God made the man and his wife leather clothes, and he dressed them. This is the first thing that God does after they sin. And I think it's something that matters more than we even know. Because a lot of times what we're tempted to do is to read the Old Testament and to see a God who's always pronouncing judgments on people, to see a God who's always telling people what they've done wrong, to see a a God who, who might even like violence and might like what it does to people. A lot of times that's the perception that we give off about God. But the first thing that God actually does after sin enters into the world is to clothe his creation. Remember, they've hidden from God. They've gone and they've, like, sewed together some fig leaves and stuff like that. Uh, They're they're hiding from God. They're hiding their bodies. They're hiding their, their sin. They're hiding everything from God. And God, before he does anything else, he clothes them. I think that verse matters more than we think, more than we realize. Because a lot of times when we're confronted with our sin, the thing that we most often want to do is run and hide as well. And we serve, we worship a God who wants to clothe us, who wants to protect us, who wants to cover over the sin that we've committed. In 1984, the movie Amadeus was released. Some of you may have seen this movie. It's a movie that chronicles uh, the life of a man named Antonio Salieri. Uh, And Salieri is uh, posed as this contemporary of Mozart. And what Salieri wants more than anything in the world is to be recognized as a wonderful musician. But at every turn, there's Mozart being one better than he is. So the movie opens with Salieri having this conversation with a priest. 
And uh, he's trying to get the priest to recognize his music, his work. And so he's playing for, for this priest all these different pieces and trying to get him to recognize, and the priest doesn't know any of them. And so what Salieri does next is he decides, well, maybe I'll play one piece by Mozart and see if the priest can recognize that. And instantly, the priest knows exactly the piece, and he knows that it was written by Mozart. And throughout the course of the movie, we begin to understand that what Salieri wanted in the beginning was a good thing. He wanted to be well-known and respected. He wanted to contribute uh, to, to the humanity. He wanted to be this musician, be this person who would compose beautiful music for people. And as the movie progresses, we begin to find out that Salieri is a prideful man. He's an envious man. He has a little bit of anger in him. And throughout the course of the movie, those sins begin to consume him completely. Until finally we find out that the reason the priest is there to see Salieri at the beginning of the movie is because he has killed Mozart. And the priest is there to hear his last confession. See, this is what the seven deadly sins can do to each of us. They can so consume us, so warp us and wrap us up in what, what they're trying to get us to do that we don't even begin to understand that the person we're becoming is not a person who follows Christ, but a person who engages in terrible acts against other people. Uh, I really like the way that Augustine describes this. He's a uh, Christian theologian from the 4th century, and talking about sin, he says that my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. This sermon is not supposed to be a downer. This sermon is not supposed to be something that, that tells us that how depraved we all are and how much we all just need to go and repent and confess. This is a sermon, this is a series that's going to show us that, yes, we are broken people. We are sinful. But we worship a God who's able to overcome that. We worship a God who, in every case, is able to transform us and change us into the people who begin to look more and more like Christ every day. So that's what this sermon series is pushing us towards. To recognize in our own lives our sin. But not just to recognize it, not just to feel bad about it, not just uh, to wallow in self-pity, but to push us towards the grace of God. To push us to become people who are more and more like Jesus. We're going to talk about each of one of these sins. Uh, we're going to try and identify ways that it matters to each of us, the ways that it, they're able to sneak into our lives and what might be some consequences of each one of them if they do. And I want us to remember through the whole thing that what God does first when sin enters into the world is to make some clothes, to begin to heal wounds, to begin to cover over the sin. And in fact, we're going to see that Jesus comes and covers us completely in a way that we need more than we know.